0: Namaste and welcome to Economics in 10 with Pete and Gav. In each podcast we'll be looking at a famous economist and asking 10 questions that will hopefully inform you and get you thinking about their influence in modern society today. We've been looking at living economists this season, so who is it today Pete and why are they so influential?
1: So today, Gav, as you say, we're going to be looking at another living economist and another Nobel laureate, So, Amartya just, Sen. Pete, just quickly,
0: did you not like my namaste? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I did. I sort of gave a little hmm, a, a, a Okay, all right. Thank you. whatever you want to take from it. Uh, yeah, so I realised, by the way, at the end of our last episode, I kind of butchered his name. I said Amartya Right.
0: It's
1: Amartya Sen. Yeah.
0: So,
1: uh, so Amartya Sen is a prolific economist and also a philosopher and uh, has produced a number of contributions to both fields so part of the problem um, obviously there's many problems in producing such a professional podcast as ours uh, but uh, uh, a significant problem in terms of uh, an Amartya oh, <laughs> Amartya Sen episode um, is narrowing things down um, but he was the winner of the Nobel Prize for his contribution to welfare economics. Um, So I would argue his main achievement is really in sort of reconceptualizing what we mean by economic development. So moving beyond just seeing economic development as simply growth, uh, but also considering the broader freedoms, as he would put it, which both facilitate economic growth, but are also... Intrinsic to what perhaps we should consider economic development should be. Did that all sound a bit pretentious?
0: No, I, I think that's fine. I think this is the thing that, that uh, <laughs> you know, when you're looking at Sen, you are dealing here with a, 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 a broad kind of idea.
1: Yeah. A, and there's lots of detail we're probably going to miss out. <laughs> oh, there's a huge amount of detail we're going to miss out. Because, like I, I said already, he's a prolific economist and he's a proper economist you know sort of you know you know he can do all the, he's, got, he's got the mathematical chops uh, he's also a philosopher so he's thinking about things from first principles you know you've got you've got a hell of a lot potentially to talk about but as a recent reviewer uh, said uh, our podcasts were already a bit long um, when I started reading him, by the way, or should I say, rereading him, like um, our last uh, thinker, Anando De Soto, I have read Sen before. I read Development as Freedom a long time ago now. Um, but when I started rereading him, I was mindful of uh, the famous Bobby Kennedy critique of GDP. Have you have you come across that? Yeah, That's we sort of we we did that in our environment special. Yeah, we did. Um, but that was, um, I think influential on my thinking in thinking about all oh, the limitations of gdp and sen's uh, approach as we'll see is very much along those lines uh you know gdp as a measure of how well a country is doing has significant limitations and he's offering a sort of a kind of replacement for that or a sort of broader way of looking uh, at economic health and well-being yeah okay yeah is that right yeah, yeah
0: no and can i just oh, say uh, though, that i think this is kind of uh, ca- kind of interesting Again, from um, a, a kind of economics teaching point of view, you know, Sen doesn't really appear on, on syllabus, does he, or on the specification, which considering no, I... his, his kind of input into the way of
1: thinking, it, it yeah, is quite interesting. It, it is, yeah. I mean, I kind of bring him in, you know, right at the start, really, when we're looking at sort of critiques of, of GDP, you know, sort of what are the flaws of GDP, and certainly, when you reintroduce the sort of the concept of economic development, you can sort of talk about him a bit then. But strictly speaking, you're absolutely right; he's not on he's not on the syllabus, um, which seems odd. Mm. Um, so anyway, just in summary, he's been enormously influential in moving us beyond that, you know this rather simplistic conception of economic success, which is just you know big economy better. Uh, you know, he's saying, "Well, oh, hang on a minute, you know that shouldn't be our aim." Um, uh, you know, there should be other things we should be aiming for when we're looking to develop our economies. So, as always, we're going to start with a bit of a biography, if you're happy with that.
0: Yeah, love it. I mean, and his biography is very important to his way of
1: thinking, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's some sort of uh, very sort of, there's some sort of very, uh, what's the word, um, impactful moments in his his upbringing, which really do shape his thinking in mm-hmm. in in. in In quite a significant way, as we'll see. Um, So he's born in uh, November the third, nineteen thirty-three, in Shantin Shantin which I probably butchered as usual, uh, which was part of the Bengal Presidency in British India. So at that point, you know, India as a modern state is yet to come uh, into form. That happens a little bit later on. In you know, and that's quite a significant. Impact as we'll see on Sen because uh, the the birth of India is um, really marred by some quite significant communal violence, which he does witness, as we'll see. Uh, so, By the way, his name, do you know what his name means? Amartya, did you come across that? Yes, yes.
0: Yeah. I, oh, I, it mean?
1: Immortal. Immortal or <laughs> heavenly. It made me think actually, Amartya, immortal. They do actually quite sound, yeah. sound quite similar, don't they? So I wonder, you know, we talk about Indo-European languages. I wonder if that's where, you know, it is. Or, there, you know, there's a link between those two. It seems to suggest that there is. It was a famous person do, who suggested it, wasn't there, Pete? It was, yeah. Another Nobel laureate. Mm. Uh, a chap called Rabindranath Tagore. Yeah. How do you think I've done with that? I think you've done very well there, Pete. Thank, thanks very much. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know I did, what? By the way, I, coming across uh, this chap Tagore, I, I was uh, he, di- he did intrigue me, so I did sort of um, get um, some of his poems on, on Kindle to have a little look at. Right, because he wasn't an economist. Uh, I mean, the Nobel uh, Prize for Economics didn't exist, you know, that early. Uh, it's for literature. Uh, so, Sen himself is born into quite a well-to-do family. You can see already he's connected to you know this sort of famous, uh, you know incredibly influential poet, uh, Tagore. And his father is a professor of chemistry. Um, and he wasn't necessarily destined to be an economist. There's a quote in his Nobel biography, he says, my planned field of study varied a good deal in my younger years. And between the ages of three and 17, I seriously flirted in turn with Sanskrit, mathematics and physics before mm-hmm. settling for the eccentric charms of economics. I mean, quite a serious chap, if he's considering his field of study uh, from the age of three. Yes, I don't think I was flirting with uh, you know, <laughs> I was probably flirting with girls rather than with Sanskrit, yeah. maths, and physics. Did you did you uh, did but, you
0: watch the interview with him where they asked him about sport and he basically said he wasn't much copper cricket and hockey. Well,
1: I watched one where he said he was a passable batsman.
0: Yeah, but what the impression I got is that. He wasn't much of a sports person, and well, so he's therefore quite
1: self-deprecating. Though he could have been sort that's, of you know, it is a fair, a fair for point. All we know. He was quite self-deprecating. <laughs> yeah, it's true. He's one of these chaps that you think if he turned his mind, he could have turned his mind to any of these fields, and it, you know excelled in them. You do get a real sense of that. You know, yeah. a really sort of versatile and highly intelligent um, uh, sort of man, and um, so he's sort of. Born on the campus of Tagore's uh, Visva Bharati, which is a, sc- a school and a college. Uh, and his, his grandfather taught Sanskrit there. His mother, uh, like him, had been a student there. So, uh, you know, this very much sort of brought up in Tagore's ways. And it's quite an interesting school. You know, he does mention at one point that it's co-educational, which at the time must have been sort of quite unusual. Um. I remember reading about the school as well. It was almost seen as a a bad thing to get good grades. You know, yeah, he's quite, a, you know, an interesting thinker, even though he does get good grades. Mm. So it's almost like, and he's sort of quietly thinking, well, oh, I quite like, and I, I do get quite good grades. <laughs> Yeah. But it's always more like, you know, you, you if grades are going to sort of dampen someone's curiosity, then that, that's something to be avoided, which is quite interesting, really. Yeah, it? it is. Yeah, I remember um, reading that, thinking it was odd. And perhaps unusually for the time as well, the school's philosophy is very open to influences from around the world. And you do get a sense of that throughout Sen's life, it's sort of openness to sort of different experiences and sort of different uh, sort of thoughts and so on. Um In his sort of Nobel biography, as well, he he sent quotes to Gore himself, you know, which gives you a sense of the sort of school and the philosophy of it. But he says, Whatever we understand and enjoy in human products, they instantly become ours. Wherever they might have their origin, let me feel with unalloyed gladness that all the great glories of man are mine. So it's really sort of anything good from all around the world, you know, should be really enjoyed and sort of we should thrive as a result of that, Mm. which I thought was lovely. Yeah. Yeah, no, very good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he sort of brought up, in this for the time, I suspect, a sort of liberal and sort of open school. But he does, in one formative moment, witness a horrific moment of communal violence. Um, and again, I'll quote quote uh, his, uh, his own words here. He says, one afternoon in Dakar, a man came through the gate screaming pitifully and bleeding profusely the wounded person who had been knifed on the back was a Muslim daily labourer called Kader Mir. He'd come for some work in a neighbouring house for a tiny reward and had been knifed on the street by some communal thugs in our largely Hindu area. So can you imagine that? He's quite a sort of young, you know, he's, he's a young lad at the time and someone comes through, Yeah. you know, he's been knifed, you know, they get him some water and so on. And he learns later that he dies in, in hospital later that, later mm. that evening. I mean, it's you know, imagine sort of witnessing that as a young man.
0: Oh, it's an incredible experience. It's a bit like you know when I read that again, it kind of made me think about the the Kahneman one as well. You know, going back to him and yeah. that soldier, and you know, they, that those formative years just having such an impact
1: is 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 interesting. Yeah, and it's you know, he really remembers a lot of the detail of it. You know, the chap's name and sort of you know exactly what happened and so on. So obviously, he's left a deep impression on him. But interestingly, he does see this um, as linking to to some of his sort of economic ideas. And um, it's like he he talks about there's a kind of economic unfreedom at work here in, you know, this child is so poor um, that he has to uh, sort of travel to a hostile area in search of income. So almost his lack of economic freedom, um, you know, led to him making this choice, which was ultimately fatal for him. But we'll come back to that a little bit later on. By the way, I should say that, you know, the family has a, a association, you, know, you could argue Sen is both sort of Bangladeshi and Indian in some respects because, he, you know, a lot of his years are, are spent in Dhaka, which ultimately becomes part of what is modern Bangladesh. And even today, he does maintain links with sort of both countries, Bangladesh and just, India. Just on, but, on that. Of course, when he was growing up, they would have all been part of the same sort of a state, as it were.
0: Yeah, that... that... Was that was that violence linked to partition?
1: Yes, yes.
0: Are you about to go into
1: that? No, I wasn't. I but yeah, well, right. yeah, I could mention that briefly. Obviously, um, after the sort of Indian independence movement, which uh, the reason I I know about is just through the film Gandhi. Have you in the film Gandhi.
0: Uh, have I?
1: No, yeah. no, no. Well, you should watch it. It's a good film. That's what I've watched it in. We Watched it in RE lessons, perhaps, right. yeah, but uh, you know, it's, it's a fantastic classic film. RE fantastic. cover lesson, <laughs> yeah. Maybe it was that. I think we wouldn't have watched it in like, we would have just watched endless episodes of Jesus of Nazareth. So <laughs> it must have been sort of uh, as an adult in RE cover lessons, yeah. I, think.
0: <laughs> I watched one uh, of those um short history things, you know, those John Green films that on YouTube. About right. partition, because again, I, I kind of find it fascinating. Obviously, at the moment, there's this, you know, argument about um, what what history we should be treating uh, teaching in in schools in this country, mm. and obviously about Churchill and his involvement in India and and you know the kind of atrocities there and and, and so on, and um, you know partition it was an incredible incredible moment of history oh, that I, I wouldn't have known anything about it until obviously this episode i thought well
1: oh, i should learn about that and I obviously I went off numbers and, of sort of movements of people yeah know, across the borders. i mean we should say briefly for those who you know before this episode had the same sort of absence of historical knowledge that we did um Actually, I did know a little bit about it because, again, I've read a, a, not only a Gandhi a film, but um, the Vikram Seth novel, A Suitable Boy, is right. set with sort of um, partition as its backdrop to a certain extent. But you look at Indian independence occurring, you know, India becomes independent of the British Empire in 1947. But Gandhi had hoped that, you know, the Muslim and Indian communities would form one sort of vast sort of subcontinental country uh, but instead there's the formation of, um, well, what become three countries at the time is East and West Pakistan. Yeah. And East Pakistan becomes, uh, Bangladesh eventually after another sort of awful conflict in, in sort of, um, later on in the 20th century. Yeah. Um, but yeah, partition is an, it's an incredible sort of business when you read about it. Yeah. Just the, and the, the sort of, oh, the volumes awful. of people who, who are displaced and the levels of violence. Yeah. And Sen does refer to it. He says, you know, there is a brief period where there is this sort of um, almost operationalization of, um, you know, religious hatred. But then, after a few years, in his view, it sort of settles down again. It's, yeah. as, if it, it's as if it never happened.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, a classic d- divide and rule. You know, that the Brits are so proud of. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's this it's it's awful, and the policy yeah. making as well, because apparently that it was it was all left to the last minute in terms of how it was going to be split and things like that, just absolutely awful part of it. Again, that I mean, maybe syllabuses have changed or whatever, but certainly never taught about it at school. And you kind of think, no. this is the argument about all, not all British, you can't do all British history, you? but you've got to see the both sides of the coin here. Mm-hmm. You know? But anyway, mm-hmm. so we've gone out of order there really, haven't we? Because obviously you said about that, but previously before that situation he obviously went through the the bengal famine didn't he yeah
1: i was just going to mention that actually um so he, he grows up in the shadow of this sort of bengali famine you know there's the personal link there again in that someone sort of wanders onto the campus who eventually realizes he's so malnourished he's, he's become deranged you know um and again there's some sort of students on the campus sort of trying to sort of boot this guy off and there's other people who've got this view that oh god no we've got to look after him um, but again, it has this incredibly sort of inf- strong influence on his thinking, even perhaps if he, he wasn't quite realising that at the time, he sort of c- comes back to it sort of again and again. Yeah, because they, the fact he does quite a bit of academic work on uh, sort of the causes of, of this and other famines.
0: Yeah, because they, they, they obviously never experienced it because they just were, they had the food available to them. They were obviously rich. And, yeah. and, and weren't impacted at all. There, there's a have got a quote here, which says, I was upset by what I saw. My grandfather gave me a small cigarette tin and said I could fill it with rice and give it to the starving, but only one tinful per family. Wow. So, you know, again, he's right at the heart of these massive
1: yeah. moments, isn't he?
0: Really? Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, because that period, like if we, you know, again going back to British history, we would just think, oh, World War Two, World War II. But you know, whilst World War Two, which is obviously this immensely important event, um, you know, India is, is is a huge country, and you've got these two major, major sort of events taking place there, which again you could know very little of, mm. um, unless you, um, you know, ch- chose to sort of look out, uh, go out of your way to study sort of Indian history, and. Um, it did remind me a little bit, I don't know, again, I'm sort of drawing on my sort of awful teaching of been drawing upon for of lessons, but uh, the story of the Buddha, you know, the sort of the original Buddha, Gautama Buddha, he sort of leads this fairly gilded life. His sort of parents are trying to protect him from sort of seeing any of the sort of negative aspects of life. But he sort of leaves his parents' palace and he sees a sick man, an old man and a corpse. And it kind of shocks him into wanting to seek enlightenment. And when I was reading these sort of stories about Sen, it made me think, almost he was shocked into sort of thinking, you know what, I've got to do something about um, sort of the world's ills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got to try and make sense of them. And if I can sort of have some impact on ameliorating uh, some of the world's problems. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's my little link
0: there. Well, and that's definitely true, isn't it? I mean, he's hopefully spent his whole life, you know, trying to help the poorest people in society. What got me? What made me laugh a little bit? I read a quote about how he was seen as a. Um, I think it was what was the quote? It's something like, um, "Oh, uh, yeah, he was seen as an economist with a heart." And mm. you just, you just think. I think that just shows something about the economics profession. <laughs> you know. <laughs> the, the, that ultimately most economists wouldn't have a
1: heart. They're, they're so fixated on, I don't know. <laughs> it yeah, just really made me laugh. There is something depressing about that. Yeah. He was also called, which he didn't like, uh, or has become called, and he said, never in India, uh, it's only in the West, but the Mother Teresa of economics. Yes. It, it's he was quite been... sort disparaging about that. Um, yeah. And just said, look, you know, I've got nothing in common with Mother Teresa pretty much. Yeah. She lived a life of self-sacrifice, whereas, uh, believe me, I kind of enjoy my food and drink. Yeah, yeah.
0: And you do get <laughs> so that sense with him, don't you, that he does enjoy life.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know. There's something quite worldly about him in, in, mm. in a good way. Um, so he does his, uh, his BA at, at Presidency College in Calcutta um, uh, between 51 and 53. And whilst he's there, he has another sort of uh, sort of negative experience in that he has, a, he has a mouth cancer, which actually leads to complications later on. In the early 70s, um, he had sort of a, a cancer of the mouth. And at the time, he, he gets some radiation uh, sort of treatment for it, radiotherapy. Uh, and, but this, you know, this is, he says, it's only seven years after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And people didn't really sort of fully understand, you know, how radiotherapy might work. So he says, you know, it did cure my cancer, but it sort of killed some bones in my palate. Mm. And so by 71, he, ha- he has to be operated on again. And he sort of talks about that quite interestingly. Um so after he's um, done his undergraduate, he-, he does he goes over to Cambridge. He's still in his late teens, by the way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's no, what he that's incredible, one isn't One degree under his belt. Yeah. Uh, and he does another uh, BA in pure economics at, at Trinity College, yeah, which uh, he has a lifelong association with, as we'll see. By the way, while he's there... He joins, guess what he joins? Do you know what he joins? Uh, is it the club that Keynes set up? Yes, well, Keynes didn't set it up, oh, no, yeah. but it was the, uh, the club which Keynes was a part of the Apostles. The Apostles, that's it. Which, if you yeah. remember from our Keynes episode, was a kind of secret ish society yeah. which had highbrow sort of intellectual discussions um, and yeah. also ate sardines on toast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which were very nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they were nice actually. Yeah. Uh, um, by the way, whilst reading through his biography, I was struck by the range of people he knew. He just knew yes. everyone, not just the yeah. economics profession. Obviously, you know, within Indian circles, he knows sort of Tagore from his upbringing. But then when he gets to Cambridge, he's mixing with, you know, the apostles. He knows E.M. Forster. Yeah. Who was the kind of, they called the, you know, the the sort of graduates, if you like, of the apostles angels. And they would occasionally come back to, not too often, Um to sort of take part in sort of uh, meetings with the sort of undergraduate apostles. Yeah. But as he puts it, there were Soviet spies. Yeah. <laughs> he said with Forster, he had good days and bad days with him. Yeah. Some days he was pleasant. <laughs> some days not. Yeah. Which, Which you do wonder. You think, mm. yeah, quite, yeah. A, quite a thing. You, you kind of think there's probably a million stories.
0: Behind <laughs> no. that, right, you get, you, you get a sense of that with him all the time though. Yeah. He's,
1: he's got loads to tell. Yeah, yeah, I bet he'd be a he'd get some great gossip out of him because, like I said, he knew everyone. Or, yeah, you know, you talk about six degrees of separation. He was definitely, uh, you know, at Cambridge with people who would have known Keynes really well. Yeah. you know, um, uh, as we'll see. So, uh, as Cam- he sees Cambridge uh, at the time as less mathematical than Calcutta where he's just come from, and. Um, But at this time in Cambridge, there's there's very much an intellectual conflict taking place between sort of neoclassical economics and neo-Keynesian economics. So his thesis supervisor uh, was another of our Economics in Ten alumni, John Robinson. Yeah, Yeah, I like the fact that you called him alumni for us. That's very good. (laughs) Uh, So he he describes the sort of various sort of neo-Keynesians, and it's a real who's who of sort of Keynesian economics. So... He's describing Nicholas Caldor here. He says, Kaldor was, in fact, much the most tolerant of the Neo-Keynesians at Cambridge. Uh, Richard Kahn was, in general, the most bellicose. Um, but the stern reproach that I received often for not being quite true to the new orthodoxy of Neo-Keynesian came mostly from my thesis supervisor, the totally brilliant but vigorously intolerant John Roberts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which I thought was quite an, uh, an amusing description. Um, If listeners haven't listened to our episode on Joan Robertson, they should, because she is great and a really fascinating character. Uh, So he does stay on uh, to do postgraduate research, but during that period, he does go back to India. So he's sort of almost allowed sort of leave to sort of carry on his study in India. And he becomes a professor uh, at an incredibly young age. He's not even 23 at this point. Um, so he's appointed to a chair in economics at the newly created Jadavpur University. So he's asked to set up a new department of economics. Um, and there's quite an amusing story here. So he's like, this is great, you know, I really enjoyed the opportunity and the challenge. But there was some graffiti on the university walls showing the new professor as just having been snatched from the cradle. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So really, I mean, when he he is a career academic, he talks quite a bit about that. I'm born on a university campus, pretty much. And I spend most of my life on university campuses. And he's quite happy with that. He sort of sees himself as a sort of natural teacher. And he teaches just about everywhere of note you can possibly imagine. You know, in the UK, he teaches at LSE, um, both Oxford and Cambridge, and um, he goes on, by the way, to become the first Asian to be a master of a Cambridge college at his beloved uh, Trinity College. Yeah. Mm. And he teaches uh, uh, in the US at uh, uh, Berkeley, Cornell, MIT, and most recently at Harvard. So he's currently uh, the Thomas W. Lamont University professor and professor of economics and philosophy at Harvard University. Yeah. Which sounds very prestigious. Mm-hmm. Very. So we should say a little bit about his personal life, because again, um, this has some influence, I think, on his thinking, particularly his views about, um, sort of the importance of uh, women in, in development. So he's married there uh, three times, and each of his his wives are, are incredible sort of women in their own right. You know, really interesting people, um, who you know that <laughs> you could do an interesting podcast about any of them. I would suggest um so firstly he's married to nabonita devsen who's a writer and an academic i mean she's written over 80 children uh, 80 books you know so she's an academic but also written some children's books i mean she died a couple of years ago um i did you know think about it she'd written children's books i wondered what she would have made of your the strange school probably would have loved it almost <laughs> <laughs> oh, <well>, certainly yeah <laughs> uh, uh, Gavin, if you don't know, is the author of a, a book, The Strange School, which yeah. can be found on uh, Amazon, can't it, Gavin? Yeah, it can. It's a, it's a classic.
0: Yeah.
1: Thank yeah, you. Thank off. you for plugging that again. <laughs> <So> that's my <laughs> um, Apparently, she was also given her name by Rabindranath Tagore. You know, really? He certainly liked to dish names out, didn't he? You know? He obviously just went around having fun doing that. What does N- I mean, Nabonita mean, then? picked up at the font. When Gavin was being bestowed upon you, you could have been called (laughs) anything. Yeah, just wandered past. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, call him incredible. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. I've
0: got a quote Um, from her. Have you got any quotes from her? I haven't got any quotes. I've got one here. She described Sen as a good economist, but a bad money manager and a clumsy father until the children grew old enough to be his students.
1: Oof. Right, interesting. <laughs> it's quite cutting, really, isn't it? Yeah, it is actually. But there you go. Yeah, yeah. So, unsurprisingly, that that particular marriage does break down. You know, <laughs> that, that quote seems to indicate why. It's not long after the, the family moves to London to take up a post at um, LSE. Um, so they have two children together. One's a journalist, and one's an actor. He's um, a Bollywood Bollywood actor. Yes, yeah. Actually. yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Um, and then in the 1970s, he marries his second wife, a wife Eva Colani, who's an economist like himself, an Italian economist. She's related to another really famous economist, Alfred Hirschman as well. He's another famous development economist. He kind of really? He's linked with everybody. You know? mm. And again, when I was sort of reading about Hirschman, as just sort of brief diversion, he was a, um, a translator at the Nuremberg Trials. It's like this little sort of web of links with really, really sort of fascinating people. Um, So um, from that marriage, he has a daughter who is uh, now a journalist and a son, Kabir, who's a hip hop artist. Yes. Did you know that? Well, you told me and we'll get back to that. Mm, interesting because i want to come back to it too uh, sadly his second wife dies in 1985 so he's left with um sort of two young children and obviously this is extremely painful and he talks about you know having the children actually sort of kept him in touch with life you know gave him a purpose during a sort yeah. of time. And, you know, incredible sort of personal sort of sadness it was he's, back he's, and forth kind of london and america from, wasn't he was, What's he, that, was, he, was he back
0: and forth between the UK and, and yeah, America, that, wasn't it? That, yeah,
1: that's right, yeah. But it also talks about how it helped him develop some empathy, you know, as a single parent suddenly. Yeah. For the role of women in society. And that's It sort right, of helped yeah. shape his views on gender equality. And also just specifically sort of within academia, and if there's any female ac- academics listening, they might be able to sort of nod safely at this point, but he sort of said there are specific difficulties often faced by Um, female academics who are often, you know, it's expected of them to juggle family life and academia in a way that sort of many men kind of get away with, if you like, Uh, they don't have to do that. So he's suddenly sort of possessed of sort of greater degrees of empathy. And certainly he talks an awful lot uh, later on about the importance of, um, you know, gender equality, not just as a good thing in itself, but also as a sort of instrumental in uh, sort of aiding economic development. Um. So he talks a little bit about um, his family at that point. You know, his kids at that point were ten and eight. You know, really quite quite young still. And so he decides that you know he wants to take them to another another country. You know, they've been in the UK for a little while, where they they might not miss their mum as much. So they decide to sort of go go to a, a, to America at that point. Yeah. So by the way, uh, MC Kabir, you're probably going to mention this like as his own website. Yes. Yeah. Did, did you look on his website? Uh, no. Oh, I did, yeah. Right. Yeah. Anyway, he, he has a third wife as well, uh, another brilliant woman, a British economic historian, Emma Rothschild. Again, another brilliant woman in her own right. You know, um, She's accepted at, at age 15 uh, to read PPA at Somerville College, Oxford. you can't to me 15. You know. uh, so she's a descendant of the Rothschild banking dynasty as well. So... Um and nowadays he lives between the two Cambridges. You know, so Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Cambridge, Cambridgeshire in the UK. Uh but apparently also spent some winters in West Bengal in India where he yeah. was born. Yeah. It's clear so that he always goes just back to India. His isn't it? Biography in it. What's that, sorry?
0: It's clear that he always goes back to India, doesn't he? He 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 yeah. always yeah.
1: overseeing stuff. One, one of the things he says about winning the Nobel Prize is that it actually gave him a bit of sort of financial freedom and he could set up some trusts, um, you know, one of which I think was in Bangladesh and one of them in India. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it gives him a bit of sort of financial economic freedom, if you like, which he, he felt he hadn't had previously, uh, which surprised me in some ways because you kind of think, um, you know. I don't know, almost, <laughs> maybe it's going back to what his first wife said about his money management, because you kind of think, well, it's not a sort of bad jobs, as it were. Yeah, yeah. But there we are. So, you know, he's he, it's a long life, and it spans an enormous period of history, and he lives through some massive events in his sort of native India that sort of directly impact, as we'll see, and influence his thinking. And he knew everyone, <laughs> And I, I think it places him in this unique position where he's he's very much part of the Western academic establishment. I mean, you can't get much more than at the center of uh, you know Western academia than Trinity College, Cambridge, and, and Harvard. But but also, you, you know, has a much broader worldview, which I think is obviously influenced by you know his, his upbringing in India, and it gives him a kind of a unique position uh, from which to view, view the world, and particularly the developing world. In a fresh way. Well, you know, he's so. also
0: been president of the Econometric Society, the Indian Economic Association, the American Economic Association, the International Economic Association. He's been honorary president of Oxfam, and now he's an honorary advisor. I mean, and I think there's, there's some link to um, a kind of feminist economics journal as well, I think. I mean, he is, again, been in lots of senior positions, Yeah. You know, again, where he's making these contacts and, and so on.
1: You know, and won loads of awards as well. The Nobel Prize is just yeah. one of them. You know, there's, there's sort of uh, the most mm. prominent. I can't remember the name of it, but you know, the the top top prize one could win in in India as well. Wow. Should we move on and look at his sort of ideas? Yes, um, let's crack on. I think I'm going to let you down this week. I, I'm sorry to say this, but um, I found his ideas quite difficult to convey in a simple manner, whilst not sort of completely watering them down. Yeah. So um, I'm just going to go for it anyway. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> so. Like I said, he's a prolific thinker, so I'm only going to focus on a few things. But one thing I did want to mention in passing, he does quite a bit of work on on famines. And again, obviously influenced by, you know, the Bengal famine. He writes a lot. He does a lot of, sort of academic work researching the causes of famine. Um, and some interesting findings that come of that. I mean, from his point of view, uh, the Bengal famine in particular was, was not to do with a shortage of food. It's, it's kind of... An economic problem in that uh, people um, in Bengal, their nominal wages were being eroded uh, by inflation. And ultimately, that priced them out of the market. You know, Mm -hmm. there was food available, but they didn't, if you like, have the economic freedom, as he would put it, uh, to purchase a necessary amount of food. Now, obviously, there is also things going on like food hoarding and so on. But if you looked at it, there wasn't actually, you know, a particularly poor harvest, or you know, in his in, in his view, uh, that or that at least was not the main cause of this. So certainly, this leads to his view of, uh, you know, uh, later on about you know, people should should have as as, as a freedom, as sort of a guaranteed entitlement, some form of a safety net. There's an interesting point I wanted to make in passing as well, just about how, from his point of view. Uh, You know, democracy, democracies don't have famines. So it's the idea that a free press uh, has a key role in preventing famines. You know, it's the idea that freedom in one area has an influence on uh, freedom in another area. So it feeds into this work on famines, but also his perhaps most famous work development as freedom, as we'll see. So he makes the contrast between China and India. You know, India, since, um, you know, it became a democracy, in the late 1940s, has not experienced any famines, whereas China, China, you know, had, had a, you know a terrible famine sort of during the, the Great Leap Forward, and it's almost like it wouldn't happen in India now because the problems would be exposed, and there would also be political incentives on uh, whichever party was in power to resolve the situation as quickly as possible. So I thought that yeah. was really interesting. Yeah. Well,
0: and he links it, doesn't he, oh. to the, the Ethiopia famine, which obviously most of our kind of UK listeners will be aware of because of Live Aid and things like that, you yeah. know, and, and um, you know, Band-Aid. And, again, that was not in a, a democracy. And he kind of pinpoints some other ones. But, I mean, again, that goes kind of back, doesn't it, to British rule, you know, and, and ultimately just not caring about the situation, you know, that the Indians kind of found themselves in. I mean, I, it, I was watching, um, this is <laughs> going off of detail, uh, Shane McGowan's um, film uh, by uh, Julian Temple, which is called A Crock of Gold. And there's a bit in there where he's talking to Jerry Adams about the Irish um, famine, uh, the, the Great Famine. And they then start saying, actually, we don't call it famine, we call it the Great Hunger. You know, and the reason we call it the Great Hunger is because ultimately it wasn't, you know, um, nature, you know, that is causes famine. It was a hunger created by, you know, the, the government in many respects, you know, not dealing with the issue at hand. And I thought that was a really interesting thing to think about. Should you mm. be calling them
1: famines mm. if if they're kind of man made, as it were? Yeah, it's not a result of sort of crop failure, bad harvest yeah. and so on, but it's more just the system uh, yeah. that's been created by whatever sort of state is. So
0: have you have you finished there on entitlement theory? No. Oh, okay. Sorry, right. Okay.
1: <laughs> well, well. Uh, <laughs> um, but you t- you t- I suppose uh, you mentioned entitlement theory. It's kind of this old idea of capabilities. Uh, did you come across that? Well, I think that I, I would say they're slightly separate.
0: Okay, so you taught well, me from, entitlement. For it, like everything.
1: when
0: it, you know, it's like, you know, what are you entitled to within your mm-hmm. country? I know it, it, you're right in terms of saying it is kind of linked to capabilities, but with the entitlement theory, this this idea about what are you entitled to within your country? And, mm-hmm. you know, so he would therefore argue in the case of, you know, a, a famine, as it were, or a hunger, that you are entitled to food. And, and it made me think about this idea, going back to a, a, a different, I think it was Kennedy, who was the one who said, uh, it's not what you can do for your country. No, it's not what you can do for your country. It's what, oh no, it's not what your country can do for you. It's what your con- you can do for your country. Who said that? You got there
1: That's John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy, right. The we mentioned earlier was Bobby Kennedy. Yeah,
0: and it made me think about about that because all the time we are being told, aren't we, Um and this is probably quite a political point, but you know about being a, a, a citizen. You know, like citizen of UK mm. and a citizen, of, and you should be proud to be an American citizen or a UK citizen or an Indian citizen, mm. whatever it might be. Mm. And you think, yeah, okay, right. But for that, surely I'm entitled to, mm. you know, not starving. You know, I'm entitled yeah. to, you know, having the right to vote. I'm entitled to certain things. You know, and and. I suppose it actually probably does relate to capabilities, but and uh, but it 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 feeds into that that thinking about well, what are our entitlements as citizens within this country? It's always like the government are trying to push back it onto us, Mm. and we're like, and every every now again we should be turning around, and I think that's kind of what. For, for me, Sen says a little bit here with the kind of entitlement theory that I think he's he's built from an uh, on from another guy, you know, which is actually what should governments be doing for their citizens? Hmm. Hmm. Does that
1: make sense? Yeah, yeah. that's no, it's interesting. Um, I mean, one sort of concept I wanted to sort of start with, I suppose, is it's just the whole idea of freedom, because his most famous book is called Development as Freedom. Yeah. And his sort of this capability approach I've mentioned focuses on the idea of positive freedom, um, which is really about people's ability to be able to do something. And he sort of contrasts that with, um, you know, the idea which is very common in sort of economics uh, of negative freedoms, which are basically the state doesn't interfere with what I do. So it's like if you think about a libertarian um, sort of approach, it's just like I don't want the state doing anything that interferes with my ability to do what I want to do. Whereas his view of, of freedom is subtly different, or maybe not subtly different, it's just different in that he's saying, well, look, you know, you need um, the wherewithal to be able to do certain things. It's a it's more positive sort of view of freedom. So just to give a few examples of that, um, if you looked at the Bengal famine, for example, all these rural ra- labourers, it wasn't negative freedom, that was stopping them from buying food. It's not like, oh no, you laborers, you can't buy buy food. It was more that they didn't have um, the positive freedom of of the wherewithal to buy that food. So no one's infringing them, saying, no, oh, you can't do that. It's more that, in a positive sense, they don't have the the economic freedom, if you like, to 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 buy what they need. Yeah, you know? mm. and just to sort of go on in, in a similar vein, you know. There's a distinction you can make between starving and fasting. You know, one is a choice, the other is not. And in some respects, you might end up in the same place, you know, malnourished. But uh, starving is to do with you lacking the means, you know, the economic freedom, if you like, to make that particular purchase choice. It's very different uh, from, uh, you know, fasting, although your body may end up in the same place. Mm. It's a sort of similar thing I was thinking of when I read that was just the idea that you could decide to live off grid in the UK or the US. Well, that's very very different from you know in parts of the world where you're nowhere near an electricity source, uh, and you know you don't have the choice to do that or not. So th- does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. So ultimately, you know, with this sort of seminal work development as freedom which i suppose is his attempt to sort of popularize his work in a sort of readable way for sort of you know idiots like me and you um it's an effort you know he says that development you know economic development should be viewed as an effort to advance the real freedoms that people enjoy you know it should be about enabling people to live flourishing lives rather than simply this very narrow focus on on, you know metrics such as gdp or GDP per capita.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, or, or uh, I, I was reading as well, like industrialization as another kind of aspect of, of development. So, yeah. yeah. I've got here about, and, he saw poverty, it, it, it kind of it, it described it as poverty is understood as deprivation in the capability to live a good life, and development yeah. is understood as capability expansion, which I think is kind right. of quite an well, interesting... You're going to move on to talking about capability, aren't you? Uh, sort of, yeah. I mean, I was going to sort
1: of carry on talking about freedom. You know, oh, I got, yeah, about, sorry, go on. Okay. You know, these he's very specific about the different types of freedoms that would um, lead to this flourishing, if you like. You know, so it's political freedom, which is, you know, people's ability to have a voice in government, and also to be able to scrutinise the authorities, say, hello, what, what, what are you lot up to? Yeah, Which is interesting, because when you think about a country like China, which in many ways we see as some kind of development powerhouse, he's sort of saying, well, actually, or you could argue in that particular sphere, at least, there's a sort of limitation yeah. on people's freedom. So, you know, you could argue from a sort of Sen perspective, perhaps China, you know, there's a limit on Chinese development. I mean, certainly you've got, sort of economic freedoms you know and that, that is obviously extremely important and you, there's a an intrinsic sort of utility uh, you know to sort of the market you know the market mechanism he's certainly not anti-market by any means um but he is about you know the market needs to serve uh, the people if you like you know it, it needs to um lead to the sort of broader flourishing and he's you know he's he's key that he, he's keen to say in, in in many respects it does but it's not uh, you know it's not the be all and end all and obviously as well there's social opportunities like uh, access to better healthcare or education and again those are important in themselves they allow people to live better lives it's not just about their instrumental importance in bringing about sort of greater levels of economic growth, you know, and it is sort of, you know, A-level economics terms, shifting the AS, AS curve to the right and all that kind of stuff. These things are good in themselves. They allow people to live uh, better lives. Um, and also you've got transparency guarantees, you know, this idea that, you know, people, um, there's, a, there's a degree of trust at, at work, you know, both uh, you know, in terms of, you know, transactions, interactions, but also with the state. And lastly, you've got protective sort of security. And this is the idea that, you know, the the freedom to have a kind of safety net so people um, don't live sort of lives of terrible misery, you know. Yeah. So in some respects, before Sen comes along, these things are sort of viewed as the ends of development. Oh, eventually, as a country, you might get to the point where all these freedoms are met. And he's like, well, no, th- these are... These are, are something you do as the means as well as the ends. You know yep. they're not. You can't sort of see them as luxuries that eventually you'll be able to afford. They're important in themselves and they help contribute to the sort of economic outcomes you want to do. So in some respects, it's, it's, there's an interdependence between them. They are the ends. They are the means of development, and they're all interconnected as well. If you think about any of those freedoms I just I just mentioned from his point of view, they are all interconnected. There's an obvious one where you think that um, social opportunities like education and health help support sort of economic uh, sort of freedoms. But also if people are educated efficiently, they'll be able to engage more with the political process. So all of these things are interconnected in helping to sort of bring about a sort of more flourishing life. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to go just to go back to
0: that thing about, you know, being, you know, not pro market but you know has no problem with the market uh, there was a, a really interesting um interview I watched with him and um Ostrom mm. where they're discussing the kind of market and it, it was it was fascinating because he was saying about how um you know economics is is a world of strong silent men being observed uh, to reveal their preferences in the market economy And so, you know, it's kind of obviously fine with like the market, but also just appreciating that sometimes just observing what people say that they kind of prefer through the market mechanism is not always the best. And that, you know, to to link in Ostrom's work, because there was kind of quite a big crossover, that conversation is left out of that in terms of saying, well, yeah I've I've observed your preference but ultimately you might want something different and maybe we're not offering whatever is different and so you mm. know there's that there is that kind of issue about trying to talk through um you know problems that people are faced with within within an economic situation well mm. we'll go on to that though a little bit with um uh, his his thoughts on democracy i hope
1: Well, I think we're going to have to limit what we talk about. So I'm just going to talk about a couple more things. And then you can sort of uh, fire away with other ideas that you think are interesting. I just wanted to mention in passing something I thought really interesting. Um, Just he talks about health and education being, you know, good in themselves. But interestingly, he says a lot of Asian economies went really big on education and health before that, you know, their economies had really taken off. You know, it's the idea that you could wait till you've become a sort of, you know, an economic powerhouse and then get really good education and health. But countries like Japan, Singapore, they went really big on that, you know, even before they could afford good education and healthcare systems. They just really went for it. And later on, that did have a sort of an instrumental impact on sort of rapid growth. But they they went for it even before they could afford it. It's not like it's some end point luxury after you've sort of got enough... Um, sort of material means through economic growth interesting as well which i didn't really think about he points out that china had better growth rates than india and developed more rapidly you know after it opened up in part because it had better education and healthcare systems Mm. even before it sort of decided to open up to sort of the market as it were but in summary all these different freedoms are the aims of development they're also very much interconnected the other idea I wanted to talk about, and then I'll sort of hand over to you for other things you might want to talk about, is just his contribution to the development of the Human Development Index. Because this is something that, sort of, as sort of A level high school students, uh, we look at. He didn't really develop the, the broad detail of this, it was another economist, a, a colleague of his called mabud uh, Al Haq. Uh, but they it's a reflection of Sen's ideas that GDP is a very narrow metric. And if we're going to measure and compare the the health of different economies, if you like, then these metrics should consider sort of broader areas of, of sort of human self-realization, if you like. Um, so it, you're, you're familiar with the HDI, of course. It, it's an index which initially... Uh, I think uh, Sen and Ulhak uh, kind of worked on this idea of, what you know, what kind of things should the, the UN report on as part of its development program. And I think group did a lot of the technical stuff on this. But they did work together in developing a sort of a broad approach. Uh, and apparently they really enjoyed working together as well. Um, but just to talk about what the HDI is, I mean, it has changed a little bit but it has sort of three elements. So rather than just sort of, oh, let's look at GDP, uh, the human development index includes life expectancy at birth, uh, you know, which is a measure of a long and healthy life. Um, It also includes uh, in sort of both the old and new version, some measure of education that used to be kind of the adult literacy rate and then uh, sort of enrollment ratios in primary, secondary and tertiary education and then uh, standard of living, which was kind of, um, you know, GDP per capita. So it still has an element of GDP in it, but it is this broader sort of uh, thing which also says, look, you know, if you want to see whether a country is flourishing or not, you know, do the people live a long time? Are they quite well educated? As well as, do they have a high material standard of living? So his overall approach and his work with uh, OHAC sort of, you know, Hack, I think does the sort of the detailed work of developing the index but I think they developed a broad approach together. I think at one point Sen was a bit like well it's still a bit limited but then he thought well actually at least it's moved the focus away yeah. from simply GDP and GMP per capita so I think he came to appreciate that it was a, you know, an important development yeah so that's my sort of the things I wanted to get across so is there any other sort of things you want to talk about briefly? No well I think
0: I mean, we should probably, well, I'll just mention just very briefly a few things that we won't go into too much depth in there because you're right in terms of like kind of timing. But ultimately, you know, his kind of first thing that he was kind of trying to think about was building on the work of some other kind of, you've argued kind of famous economists, the Marquis de Condorcet and uh, Kenneth Arrow when kind of thinking about yeah, um, we've
1: not really touched upon Arrow. I think deserves an episode all of his own. Yeah, sort of impossibility theorem, which we we could have talked about. Yeah, we, we should s- come back to and do an episode on Arrow at some point. Yeah,
0: and and that was like, how do you aggregate the decision making progress for social policy? And so that was where he kind of really kind of uh, focused in on. And it and it uh, that is really interesting. I mean, that was a mm-hmm. kind of an area where when you're searching said you end up going down all these different paths kind of thinking well what is the condorcet method what you know like you're saying the impossibility theorem and it's quite mm-hmm. interesting because Lewis Carroll or Charles Dodgson he was kind of quite interested in this as well and it's kind of fascinating to kind of go down uh, that route yeah. um secondly obviously that idea of the the um capabilities thing you know obviously that's what you speak about kind of a lot that you know the capabilities to do certain things yeah you know and and he kind of talks about um you know um the the big area there is is this he's kind of taken on utilitarianism there isn't he and john Rawls are like the kind of the big kind of areas that he's kind of challenging when he's saying well well, let's try and make you know the most people happy whatever utilitarianism or john Rawls is kind of theory of justice where he's kind of like saying well look under this veil of ignorance, we'll come up with um, what we think is the most just society. And Sen is kind of like saying, well, hold up a second. Who's for you to say that, you know, mm. from this kind of position? You know, what we've got to do is kind of get out there in uh, amongst the masses because, you know, if you say – I mean, there's a thing about kind of primary needs was like the John Rawls thing. So he's saying, look, what we should do is provide primary goods to help with development. Okay, so let's give everyone that, give everyone this, give everyone that. And from that basis, you can then go on. And and Sam was saying, yeah, but if you've got someone who's disabled, they might not want, say, a bicycle to go to market. They can't use it. Or um, a pregnant lady will need more food than another person, whatever it might Mm. be. So you've got to go to the kind of that, that individual kind of nature mm. Of, mm. Of, of working through, um, you know, what people's kind of need, as it were, the, the, the kind of capabilities that they're looking for. And one final thing is that across all of this, you know, is like you already kind of mentioned, this belief in democracy. Mm. And, you know, he was a real scholar of um, Smith and Marx, wasn't he? And, yeah, and very a, much so. And there's a there's a thing with um, democracy is kind of quite interesting because he's a massive believer in public reasoning. So this mm. idea that you, you've just got to get lots of people <laughs> discussing
1: things, you know. Yeah, and then things uh, like what? What do you? Oh, God, I've forgotten the name for them now. We get a, whole, a load of people together and you know to discuss a particular issue. Um, crap, what are they called?
0: What is it? Citizen assemblies. Citizen, sadly,
1: <laughs> is it? Is it Yeah. So, yeah. like, you know, I kind of think I, I suspect he'd love that idea. Well,
0: I, I was interested because it was a great interview with him and Will Hutton, and, and you kind of think that he would kind of be for maybe the Brexit uh, referendum because you think, oh, well, mm. that's kind of what you want. You want that public reasoning; everyone's chatting about it, and then you're making mm. the decisions. But he kind of basically says, "Well, this is what you talk about in terms of." Um, Freedom and fr- the free press, you know, what you've got to make sure is that within um, the democracy that you're looking at, there is a press that is not basically ruled by people who want certain mm. things to happen. And so they kind of give you misinformation and, and stuff like that. So yeah. he kind of sees Brexit as
1: a, as a kind of a, a bad idea. Yeah, but, I mean it's a much broader concept of democracy though, isn't it, than simply voting on stuff. It's about sort of civic education. It, yeah, know, yeah. About, and and and, and as you say, the role of a free press, you know, you know, and a plural you know plural a plural press, which we I don't think we really have in this country. Yeah, you know, the press is, is quite But, oh, but it's, he, not, it's not he, he t- the structure, is it?
0: He talked a lot also about um the Smith's impartial observer. And, and using them. So you basically say, look, you know, let's have this public reasoning. Let's have a discussion. And an impartial observer will then go, right, okay, having listened to everything, we think this is the best. Mm. But that in itself, when it comes to kind of criticisms of Sen, creates sort of challenges. Mm. So there's, there's, I mean, there's so much. There's an interesting, again, going back to... Um, uh, this ostrom Sen interview, where he talks about the Copenhagen summit where they're discussing the environment in 2009. And he basically says, that that was never going to work because you had basically the Europeans in pollution, whatever, and said, like, we want to be doing this. And China turned around saying, well, hold up, you're the, being the polluters. You're changing the rules now we don't want to do that. And then India joined in with China and stuff like that. And so that Copenhagen summit of 2009 basically fell apart. And he said the, the reason why is because they were not prepared to have that discussion. You know, they did mm. not want to listen and, and not have that go through that public reasoning and then hit there in, in that respects, who acts as the impartial observer. He does say that you've got these big global institutions that can do that role. But again, you've got to look at the kind of political influences that, that mm. feed into that. And again, that's um, a, a, a criticism of Sam, which we're going to get onto of that. He doesn't really sometimes think about the political structures that are already in play. Uh, is, is that all right for me, for Pete? Is that... That's
1: fine. And I'm going to ask you now, because um, I, I think I, I'm fairly limited in what I've got to say about this, but what, what would you say, uh, the critics have to say about sen when have, oh, do you, you, have bell, you got bell? the bell i've got the bell so i ring the bell right okay. that's
0: <laughs> that's the bell quite. moment
1: yeah yeah Oof. uh so
0: i wrote down here again what do the critics say about then sen the fact that he continually goes on about it. it's an incomplete theory uh must create some bother have you, did you come across that I no, mean, you carry on. Well this is the thing about the capabilities he, he 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 says all the time it's an incomplete theory and the reason it's incomplete is obviously all things are continually changing it's very dynamic and you get that you, you completely get that right mm. okay and um he doesn't want to write say a capabilities list now um there is um someone called Martha Nussbaum who's kind of taken up the challenge now of capability who has written a list you know being able to live to the end of a human life of normal length, being able to have good health, adequate nutrition, being able to avoid unnecessary and non-beneficial pain, uh, being able to use the senses, imagine, think and reason, being able to have attachments to things and persons outside ourselves, being able to form a conception of the good, being able to live for others, you know, and so so on, and get into to the environment as well. So Martha Nussbaum has kind of really taken that on. And, it, and um, you know, he kind of and he he's he he doesn't really want to to do that and this is the th- when i was reading him all the time i was thinking you just think his policies are sort of unworkable and that and that's the kind of criticism of him is that you kind of think well how do you um try and find these things out on an individual basis mm. what people kind of capabilities kind of are you know, again, the the criticisms of when he talks about the importance of democracy, when he he then doesn't really challenge this notion of well, what do you do when you've got the kind of press as it is? What happens mm. when you've got, you know, he he wants an impartial observer, but then then you kind of go into the idea of technocrats, mm. and then technocrats mm. themselves are undemocratic, aren't they? Yeah.
1: Do you know what I mean? It's I was just going to say, I mean, on a sort of slightly separate note is you do look at China as an interesting case in point in that, you know, there are, there are sort of limits in some of the freedoms Sen talks about. But the implication I got when I first read Development's Freedom, actually, and when I've read it again, it's a bit more nuanced than that, was almost like, you know, political freedoms will actually mean that the economy grows more rapidly. And you're thinking, would the Chinese economy have grown more rapidly um, not that he would necessarily see that as, as as the be all and end all anyway, if um you know there'd been more political freedom. I don't know. It's it's, it's just it's interesting. Yeah, it's that's
0: one like- of that's one of the things Chomsky says. There's a video about Chomsky saying about how um you know, even though you kind of look at the the famine in, in China and, and how, how awful that is, he says if you then look at the number of just cases generally of like India, you know, card kind of argues that have kind of, and I think Sen sort of acknowledges this, that they've kind of got used to a lot of people dying of poverty on a, just a general basis. Mm-hmm. And if you mm-hmm. add One those, time. yeah, and if you add those numbers up, they go far above, you know, what China lost in their famine, you know, and beyond. And so, therefore, you kind of think, well, you know, it's, he criticised China, but you know, why aren't we coming up with maybe a, a policy there that is not confronting the ongoing issues? And I think, I mean, he again, he's a kind of aware aware of that. But mm. you know, yeah, it's mm. it, it's it, he's he's interested. Chomsky is 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 a probably a bit of a critic, a, a critic of him. Right? Is that right? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, it's dingaling.
1: Oh, throwing
0: the bell. Oh, sorry. Hey, uh, now, hold up. Food time. Uh, oh, no, sorry. <laughs> Just before we get on to that. Sorry. I, and I was supposed to say this, and I do apologise. He's done a huge amount of work on gender inequality, hasn't he? Mm. And I think we should have said that and um, you know about how when he writes he he writes as in like she doesn't he and and her he always uses that within his writing Um, but there was an interesting thing where he was asked about gender inequality and he just basically says I'm interested in human beings and therefore this leads on to my interest in areas where there is just general inequality so if he Sees that there is a gender inequality, he will deal with that because ultimately he is interested generally in human beings. It's a bit mm. like—is he's, he's an atheist, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. And and again, he—this is why he doesn't like to see that kind of the the religious split and stuff like that. He's interested in just the singular human being, and and I think that's quite interesting to think about. Nice. Anyway, sorry.
1: Food time, oh, Pete. Oh. So, I had a few options there. Obviously, we, as always, you know, there's the Nobel Prize menu to draw upon mm. uh, from 1998, but uh, I think he would have enjoyed it as much as any of our economists because, as, yes. as I said, I think he liked his food and drinks. So I'm sure he enjoyed that fine meal. I did think, as the uh, master of Trinity College, he might have enjoyed Trinity burnt cream. Might. Come across that? No. Seems to be a bit like creme brulee, to be honest. But there we are. You know, it's funny, you know, I don't think... Did Wolverhampton University have any sort of specialist dishes?
0: <laughs> well, they famously came up with uh, the Balti, didn't they? Right, OK. Or did they?
1: Or maybe it's... maybe what, the I'm... university did? Oh, well, no, no, not the university. <laughs> I was just thinking about Wolverhampton generally. Um, he's obviously from the Bengal region, and, the, the you know, Bengali cuisine uh, sounds delicious. Uh, so we could have... Well, I am going to pick uh, from that. Did you know, by the way, that... Uh, Bengali cuisine um, is one of the few cuisines from around the world that is served service a la russe. Do you know what that means? No. It's like one course after the other rather than all the courses at once. Yeah, right. probably quite unusual from around the world. Yeah, yeah. But there we are. So what I decided to make, uh, and it is just going to be for me, <laughs> it's just going to have to me be, because we're not together because of this yeah. awful COVID situation. You're just going to have to listen to me eating a, a bapa doi. Well, Do you want to know what that is? Yeah, go on. It's a, it's a kind of custard, I think. It's like evaporated cream, milk, yoghurt, a bit of cardamom with uh, some strawberries and pistachios on top. Well, there you go. I've not tried it myself yet, so I'm going to go and fetch one and ta- torture you uh, by eating it while we talk. Okay. I, I,
0: can I just say, though, did you know that he had a, a dessert named after him?
1: I did not know that. No, oh, my God.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's called the Nobel Amartya, and it's a, basically a, a dessert with crushed lentils, apparently big in South India. Wow. Yeah.
1: I'll let you down there. Huh? It's all right. Anyway, I'm going to go and get my bapadoy back in a minute. Okay. Right, back so in I'm the back room. with my bapadoy. Just had some feedback from my wife who says it's Okay. <laughs> Which, given G's very polite person, it could be disgusting. Yeah, um, I'm
0: thinking that now. I'm gonna have a little bit. on the going in. Okay. And and I Ooh. hope I don't get too jealous here. What's it like, Pete? <laughs> it's an interesting taste. Does that mean it's not very nice?
1: Um, well, look, you,
0: I tell you what. You 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 carry on eating that. Let's go quiz time.
1: Ugh. Yeah,
0: I'm okay. not sure about it. And you tell us at the end, Pete, once it's lingered around your senses, as it were, a little bit, you know. Yeah. I'm kind uh, of brought a glass of water with me. It's no, it's, I'm sure it's what <laughs> I've done with the recipe rather than the recipe. <laughs> right. Okay, right, carry okay, on. Here quiz we time. go, quiz time. Question number one. India is the, A, most polluted country on Earth per square mile, I think, something like that. B, the wettest place on earth. C, the most populated country.
1: Well, it's not the most populated, that's China. Um, I'm going to say the most polluted. No,
0: it is the B, wettest place on earth mm-hmm. it's in India. In fact, you should have known that because that was part of my chilli question last time. Oh, yeah. well. There you go. <laughs> that was retrieval hmm. learning, as it's known in the trade. Okay. Uh, and you failed. Oh, well. In Rajasthan, there is a a temple of rats, b temple of cows, c temple of mongoose. Temple of cows. It's a temple of rats. Oh, God. I threw in cows because I, I thought cows it... cow are a sacred animal. Maybe. Exactly. That's why I threw it in yeah. there to to take you off the scent. Okay. okay. What board game was first played in India? Was it a chess? B, backgammon. C, snakes and ladders. Chess. <laughs> snakes and ladders. I'm sure it's chess as well. Is it not chess as well? <laughs> well, I looked it up and, and it, it wasn't... Where's it wasn't, chess first played then? It wasn't keyed. Uh, uh, um, I don't, wait, not, not, not there. Mm. Uh, mm. <laughs> one, one other board game, just for interest. Ludo was apparently... Uh, mm.
1: I've got three on three as in Yeah you know out of
0: three but you know you still can do better than last time where you got one out of five. Okay, How good. many recognised languages are there in India? Is it A sixteen, B twenty two, or C thirty?
1: Twenty-two.
0: Correct! Yay! <laughs> okay. <laughs> what could you, what can you find in India? Is it A the tallest statue? B, the world's largest sundial, or C, a floating post office?
1: Well, as soon you've said it's really wet, well. I'm going to go for the floating post
0: office. Well, do you know what, Pete? That's a little bit of a cheat, because you can find all of them in India. <laughs> well, I'm not wrong, man. <laughs> okay, the tallest statue is known as the Statue of Unity. The world's largest sundial is in Jaipur, and the floating post office is in Dal Lake, uh, Srinagar. Hmm. Okay, no. Wow. So, look, here's a proper fifth question for you, Pete. Which oh, animals are married off to appease the rain gods in Varanasi? Oh, sorry. Is it A. Worms? B. Frogs? C. Cows? Frogs. <laughs> it's correct. Yay! Well done. So, so you got two out of five last time. Two out of five. Well done. I'm on an upward curve. You are. Brilliant. Right. Shall I ring the bell? Yeah. Ring the bell. Let's move on. Okay, so what is your favourite story about Sen that you came across when reading up on him?
1: Uh, right, I've got a couple, uh, so you can decide which is the. Uh, and there was quite a few funny stories, but one of them was when he was with his first wife, who's you know a very sort of prestigious academic and writer, and some poet turns up uh, and she's out, and he, he says, "Oh, I wanted to read them to um, you know to her to get a critical judgment." And then, uh, so that she's the bloke says, All right, well, I'll read them to you instead. And so Sen's trying to get out of it and says, Oh, I've not really got the literary sophistication. And the poet says, No, that's fine. I want to know what the common man would react to. Yeah, yeah, it's a good story. (laughs) So he said, The common man, I am proud to say, reacted with appropriate dignity and something wrong, which I quite like. Yeah, it's a good story. Uh, But I think my favorite story is actually, I think I've mentioned, you know, there's a lot of sort of internal politics. uh, 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 at Cambridge when he's there and you know there's people from quite sort of different backgrounds and so on um, but then there's this chap I think it's Morris Dobb is is going to join Trinity College on the inv- invitation of uh, this other chap Robertson and Robertson says yeah I'd, I'd love to teach at Trinity and then Dobb says uh, uh, sorry Dobb says yeah I'd love to teach at, at Trinity but then later on he says look I need to give you the full facts so he said look I should have told you I am a member of the Communist Party um if you don't want me to teach um i i completely understand you know if you don't, don't think that's appropriate for trinity so he sends him a one-liner reply he says dear dob so long as you give us a fortnight's notice before blowing up the chapel we'll be all right <laughs> yeah it's a quite a lovely story it's quite an yeah. english story isn't it, well, no, it
0: I've is, yeah i've got one yeah, yeah. oh go on oh, buy me yeah, i know it expected, it? Right. i know it's incredible um Apparently when he won the Nobel prize, obviously people flocked to him when, when he was in India, um, you know, and like I said, a dessert was named after him. Anyway, there was one incident where, um, you know, a person comes up to him and says, you know, basically um, thrust a pen in his hand, right. During a walkabout. And uh, Sen said, where is the book? Yeah. And, you know, he's looking for something to sign. And the man said, I do not want your autograph, sir. Just touch the pen and bless it. And I'm sure my son will pass his exam. Wow. There you go. And I, it was quite, He's, he's you know, I, I quite like that story. I don't know why. <laughs> um, let's go for your, the second one, I think. We'll go yeah. For, okay. Ring the bell, Pete. Oh,
1: right.
0: Okay. We're trying to appeal to the younger demographic and all the geeks out there. And obviously, as we always say, we mean that in the nicest way. Uh, If Sen was a character in the Marvel Universe or Star Wars, who would he be and why?
1: Well, I'm hoping you perform better than last time because you performed miserably badly. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, So, right. So Star Wars first for me. I'm going with The Mandalorian. Right. So you're going to have to bear with me here. But I was just taken with Sen's description about becoming a single parent. And now we had to sort of take on this more traditionally nurturing role and remind me a bit of the Mandalorian's relationship with the child.
0: Right. Okay. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. that That's fine. Yeah. I've got, I've, I've got one. Okay. Go on. Um, apparently in the 1980s, uh, a seminar was held regularly in the wood panelled old library at All Souls College in Oxford. Yeah. Uh, where, yeah. where did your beautiful wife go? Uh, too, University College. Okay. Anyway, um, it was known informally, yeah, this seminar, as Star Wars. Right. Yeah. And it was four philosophers, Derek Parfit, Ronald Dworkin, uh, Jerry Cohen, and Aman man, Amartya Sen. Quite. Anyway, I was thinking, that's quite interesting, Star Wars. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like a Jedi High Council. Right. And then I thought, right, he's going to be a member of the Jedi Hair Council, but we've obviously used up Yoda, yeah, and Obi Wan or whatever, and I think we've even used Mace Windu. So okay. I'm left with Ki Adi Mandy. <laughs> what does he look like? Is he he's the blue dude? Got, he's got a very tall head. Yeah, is he
1: blue? No, I don't. No, he's not blue. Has he got like a kind of very tall head and like? Like hair descending from the back of that. He's just very got a tiny. very
0: long hair, That's the best way I can describe it, Pete. Yeah, okay. But we'll go for your Mandalorian. It's more up to date.
1: Yeah, I've got a Marvel one as well. Yeah, go on then. Uh, I thought Hank McCoy, a.k.a. the Beast, he's just yes. sort of proficient in a number of fields, speaks a number of languages, bit of a genius.
0: Yes. Uh, well, he is blue, I, though. I've yeah, I looked up him. most intelligent Marvel figures, uh, characters. And I think Hank McCoy's in it. Yeah, yeah no, he was. He was in it. Uh, but they had as number one, who I chose, uh, Reed Richards.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, because apparently yeah, he looks at the bigger that, picture. Yeah. He's got quite a few doctorates. Um, yeah. Now, did you know, though, Pete, um, little fascinating fact for you, okay, um, Stan Lee did co-create an Indian superhero. No, did yeah. he? Yeah, in 2011, Chakra, the Invincible, made his mm. debut in a comic book. Yeah, the story mm. had a touch of Spider-Man and an Iron Man with a Desi twist. Oh, Desi twist. Really? As Chakra was a teenage tech genius n- named Raju Rai, who inadvertently activated a blue jumpsuit that unleashed the Chakra's energy centers in his body, the suit gave him special powers to keep Mumbai safe. Well, yeah. So there yeah. you go. I look out, Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, hey. Well, either of one, I think they're fine. I think we look, we've done better than last time, haven't we? we have ring the bell right so what books would you recommend if people wanted to learn more about sen or
1: some of his ideas well perennial theme we like people to read their uh, work in the original development as freedom is readable he's got quite a dense style he's not as easy to read for example as hernando de soto it's just it's well you know it's a very logical you know it's quite yeah quite a dense style but you know what if you're prepared to persevere with it i think there's a lot in it uh, if you want to hear him speak uh, there's loads of youtube lectures of him speaking and he's yeah. a very engaging man i would say he's very self-deprecating but you know very interesting so if you just you know put in youtube amartin you'll you'll find loads of sort of him sort of being interviewed by various people i found and it I'd easier also... easier to watch than to read yeah very possibly actually um but also, uh, I, I always recommend these because I think they're really interesting. I think his is particularly good. Whenever someone rings a Nobel, uh, wins a Nobel Prize, they have to write a sort of uh, a little brief biography of themselves. And I think his is excellent and really interesting. Sort of covers his ideas and his life probably more effectively than, than we have. <laughs> yeah. So, what about you? Uh,
0: well, I've just got a few. I've, I mean, we've talked about this before. The economics book by DK, which is publisher has got loads mm-hmm. of different things about the big ideas in economics. Um, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. And 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 funnily enough, for Sen, it was actually quite good. So mm-hmm. um, Nile Kishtani, you bought me that book, A Little History of yeah, Economics, yeah. had a lovely chapter book. on um, on uh, Machia. And um, I went out and bought uh, a book by Lawrence Hamilton. Uh, which is a, a series of books called Key Contemporary Thinkers. And his book is on Amartya Sen. And it's right. kind of like a summary of his ideas. So that that's very good. Can I just say, we, we have um, someone that we follow online um, called uh, Valentina Erasmo, who yeah. has a PhD in ethics and economics and history of economic thought. And she's really big on Sen. So, I mean, if you, you know, want to look at some ideas, she is someone that you might want to follow And she's very nice in terms of answering questions and things like that. So Valentina Erasmo. Okay. Uh, There you go. All right. Fantastic. I'll ring the bell. Yeah. Oh, okay. (laughs) Okay. You have got better. (laughs) Um, Yeah. If Sam was a boxer, what do you think his walk-on music would be and why?
1: Right. I've got a few ideas. Yeah. Uh, Quick. The world is changing by arrested development. Yeah. Like Arrested Development, I've I love Arrested Development. there, and I did think you know a bit of West meets India How about Ravi Shankar and Philip Glass collaboration. I'm not sure either of them is great sort of sort of boxing music though. No, and um, A R Rahman or Rahman uh, did the the famous tune from uh, Slumdog Millionaire. Jai Ho, I think that would oh, yeah. really good. I hope, um, yeah, that's the one, yeah, which that's apparently a in translation. I read two different translations, one of which it means hail, salute, yeah, but the other one is victory to thee, yeah, it's quite different translations, really. But <laughs> yeah. victory to thee, you know, great sort of boxing sort of anthem, yeah, it's a good tune. Uh, And then by the same artist, they are there's one called Kaiser Mudier M- M- Tom, I have no idea if I pronounce that. But I quite like the start of that. It sounded a bit like Won't Get Fooled Again by the Who. So I think he's, he's quite a sort of funky artist actually. All right, okay. Yeah, and good. lastly, Kabir Sen. Yep, yep, yep. MC, MC Kabir. Yeah, he- Amartya's own son. Wouldn't he? Wouldn't he? He'd love to come on to some rap music by yeah. his own son. Probably. To be
0: honest, Pete,
1: when you told me
0: that his son was a rapper, I stopped looking. I, I just I just watched a load of his videos and I do you know what? I really enjoyed his music. I like genuinely he's got a lovely like I used to kind of like acid jazz yeah. when I was at university. And he's got a really kind of laid back rap style. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think ultimately he should be rapping as his dad enters the ring. Yeah. My it's one that I chose nice, was a song called Jibber Jabber. Right. Yeah, because it has a line in it where it says, everyone here has a right to eat. Right. And what I quite like that- as well, it's got a call back and response. So let's try this, Pete. Ready? Yeah, okay. okay. When I say jibber, you say jabber. Jibber. Jabber. Jibber. Jabber. When I say pitter, you say patter. Pitter. Patter. Pitter. Patter. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> Yeah, it works a treat, doesn't people, it? People could be chanting this along at home, you know. Yeah, no, exactly. I hope they all joined in there. Yeah. Um, can I just say, I think MC Kabir is an is a Arsenal fan.
1: Was he? Yeah. I was yeah. to be honest, he would, have, he would have been in London in his sort of formative years when Sam was at, um, you know, what do you call it, uh, LSE?
0: Yeah, I was I was watching one of his videos and he had a Guna a wo- a woolly hat on. Oh, there, so we there you go. Right, OK, let's ring the bell. Mm. Okay, we, we've gone for, by one. the way, MC Kabir, haven't we? Right,
1: Poetry yeah. Corner. Right, sorry, I've just got to find my first line which you. sent me. Right, are we ready? Yeah. Who is the somebody, everybody, nobody that had an impact on social
0: choice theory? That, my friend, is Amartya Sen. Born in India way back when the English controlled through divide and rule and a famine came to Great Bengal. He would remember those days of malnutrition and religious violence that came from partition, in his work that won him the Nobel Prize that tried to make sure that no one dies. He showed how famines were about distribution and that good democracy was part of the solution. Sen looked at entitlements and ease of access to goods and services that brought progress. Famines were man-made, not weather-related, and good governance was key that he illustrated. He then turned his mind to welfare economics and added the capability approach into the mix. Were people free to make their own choices? Did economists listen enough to individual voices? Why should the focus be all about income? When that was just part of a much larger sum. His inspiring ideas are the reason why we now have a measurement called HDI. B accepts his theories are incomplete and they don't offer policies that are simple and neat. For example, should there be a capability list to help government decisions or at least assist? He's been described as the economist with a heart. And that ultimately seems a good place to start.
1: Yeah. I like that, of. As you say, it got better as it went on. <laughs> Thanks. Right, okay, ring the bell. bell. Okay,
0: now, what, uh, oh yeah, do we like him? Would we have a beer with him? Oh,
1: yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. He's a really engaging sort of person, I think. I think we'd really like him. We, I've got a few ideas about what we could do together. Love him. Apparently he liked to go for a bike ride, particularly when he went back for winters in India. So we could go back for a bike ride with him. His bike is in
0: the Nobel Prize Museum, apparently. No way. What yeah. about his cricket bat?
1: No, no. But I just but read that go the other day. some cricket nets. And, uh, you know, we turn out his sort of passable batsman. I think that's him being self-deprecating. I yeah. reckon he just us around the place. Yeah. Um, but we could go to the theatre. Apparently he likes the theatre. He loves Shakespeare and George Bernard Shaw. Nice. Maybe we could go to the Globe lovely. Yeah, we've been to the Globe before. I'm sure he'd like that. Apparently he loves Shakespeare, though not Othello. Too simple. Mm. Yeah. Too simple. Wow. But he, yeah, but he liked his wine and food. As we said, he used that to dismiss this sort of Mother Teresa comparison. So we could do some fine dining. And apparently also loves arguing. That's how he relaxes. So um, I suspect we wouldn't be arguing with him intellectually because we'd be mentally inferior. But maybe we could have an argument about the bill. Yeah.
0: We could I be like, that, no, I, no, Amartya,
1: you had three glasses of Chablis. i think
0: i think he'd like the fact that we've done um you know like a smith and a marks you know and a robinson podcast i think he'd appreciate that yeah of course he would yeah so i think we'd have a great old time great so i ring the bell (laughs) yeah i've just realized i've been using the wrong end of the stick but there we go Uh, oh there we go so who is it next time or what's happening next I think we've got a couple of specials lined up, but I'm not going to say what. Uh, okay. I think, think our next to comments, a show, mystery. You might, you might disagree with me here. We might do um, Muhammad Yunus. Yeah. Is that yeah. agreed or not? Yeah. Anyway, we'll, we'll get on to that. I think we might be doing the man behind the Grameen Bank, but we'll and wait and see. Yeah. Okay, cool. Fascinating. Nice sort of segue from Sen, actually. Yeah, that's yeah. what I thought. I thought it'd be quite a nice yeah. one to do. Okay, excellent. So we'd like to thank you for listening and hope that you will listen to our next podcast. Uh, we'd also like to thank our friend Nick, who gives us technical advice and always makes it better with regards podcasting. And remember to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Economics in Ten, or you can contact us by email at economicsintent at gmail.com. We are always delighted to receive correspondence.
1: We are indeed. We love correspondence uh, and we also love reviews, uh, good or bad, on iTunes. If you've got to the end of this episode, it probably means it's going to be a good review. Uh, It means you've persevered. Uh, So, yeah, we are that shallow. So, thank you for listening. Thank you.